0: I have one more bonus episode for you this week. This past Sunday, our Piedmont Okefenokee Baptist Association Mission Strategists, I know that's a that's a mouthful to say, our Mission Strategist, Greg Benfield, preached for me. Greg's a dear friend, and I was very much glad to have him in our pulpit. Over these last three weeks, I have been encouraged to enjoy hearing a friend preach, not too far from here, uh, to worship with my in-laws and at First Baptist Church, Ella J., Georgia, and together with fellow believers for worship at First Baptist Church, Orlando. It's good for me every now and then to be in the pew and hear the word preached, but I am very much looking forward to returning to the pulpit this Sunday. Today I have a for you a sermon I preached in 2019 as part of a series on families. In this sermon, I take three scripture passages to teach three common traps that Christians face. As you listen to the sermon... Every now and then, you might hear a metal clanging sound. When I preached this this sermon, I had on the stage several animal traps, and throughout the sermon, I tripped several of those traps so that they would slam shut, and that's what you're hearing. I hope this word will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, and if you are local to Waycross, I hope you will join me this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. I'll be preaching from Mark chapter 4. God bless.
1: So it doesn't matter what you're trying to trap. It doesn't matter what type of trap you are using. All traps, both those that catch animals and those that catch people, function on two basic principles. Two basic principles are uh, what make every trap ever built uh, work. The first is that traps, when they are set up, must appear to be safe, and inviting. Now, I, I put out the word this week about I needed some traps for, uh, for a sermon illustration. This is the blessing about living in South Georgia. I had more offers for traps than I could, than I could take. And you've got up here just basic sort of small animal traps. And so uh, possums and squirrels and those sort of things. There's a, there's one that, a leg one, but most of these are, are cage traps. And when you set these up, you, 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 provide, you, you make them so that they, they all the things about them that might look dangerous, that, that might look scary, you hide them. And so if you were going to set these up in, in, your, in your backyard or on your property, you'd probably cover them up with some straw and some leaves and that kind of stuff. And you would put one of the, the key elements of all of these traps is you put some bait in there. Now, the bait changes depending on what you're trying to capture, but the bait is always something that is desired, that it attracts. And and you put the bait in there, and, of course, you open the door wide, and, and it's almost like a free offering. Wherever you put it and whatever you're trying to capture, when it walks by and it smells it in the air, maybe it sees it with its eyes, it looks like there's something that is good and inviting that it can have for free that leads us to the second principle of every trap and that is traps are designed that once the thing that you are looking to ensnare is fully committed that's why in the back of every one of these traps is the spring and once the animal is fully committed that's when the trap springs you don't want it springing when they're at the door they'll run away you want the animal to come all the way into the very end. In fact, you put the bait on top, of the, on top of the mechanism that springs the trap, and so when that animal goes all the way into the very back of the trap and it puts its feet, its paws on the thing that has the bait to take the bait and enjoy it, that's when the trap springs and they are stuck. Now, those are the two principles that work for every trap there's ever been made. And then there's a third principle about traps that's just the reality of it, and that is once you have been ensnared, whether we're talking about animals or people, once you have been ensnared by a trap, then you have forfeited. You might enter a trap freely. None of these traps force animals in. They walk in on their own power, on their own will, their own desire, led in by the enticement of the bait. But once the trap springs and the door closes and you are ensnared, then the animal is forever under the control of the one who is trapping. Certainly on the very minimum, loss of freedom. But oftentimes it also means loss of life. One of these traps came from a buddy of mine, and he said, I've got a trap you can borrow, but you don't mind if there's some bullet holes in it, do you? And I said, no, that that makes the point even clearer, that the things that have been ensnared in these traps weren't to be pets. They weren't to be well taken care of. They were to lose their life. I want to speak about traps this morning. And listen, the truth of it is there's a thousand things out there that we could talk about that can ensnare you. But the truth is, there are some common things and some common things that have been ensnaring us since the fall of man. And so I really want to just kind of give three headings, three major categories, and under them we can put many things and talk about some things that are ensnaring us. Now, let me just be honest with you and say what I hope to do this morning is to wave the flag of warning. Some of you this morning are on the outside edge of some traps in your life. You're smelling the bait. You're eyeing the bait. You're Pondering whether or not it's safe and, 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 and okay to enter into the trap. Maybe you've come in halfway even and nothing bad's happened and you are on the precipice, you're on the edge of committing yourself all the way in to take the bait. And I hope this morning to wave the flag of mourning to you and say, flee, flee from that thing that wants to ensnare you. Some of you right now are those folks that you think there is no danger. I mean, you're going to hear me say there's things out there that are ensnaring us. You're going to hear me say there's some bad things out there that want to entrap us. But, but honestly and truly, you're just thinking, listen, we live in a happy world. There's nothing bad out there. And I want to awaken you, open your eyes to the things that are around us. In fact, some of the traps I'm going to share today are not things that I think many of you would even think are a trap. And then there's a third group today. And those are you who are already ensnared. I mean, you've already gone in, you've taken the bait, the door's closed, and you're stuck. And I want, we're going to end today with these three things. Pride, arrogance, and shame are the things that keep us from calling out or help to the one who can save us. And if you're in that group this morning, I hope you'll stay with me till the very end, and you might hear how to be set free. Here are the three general ideas of things that ensnare. We'll take them one by one. The first is sexual immorality. The second one is worldly entanglements. And the third is a false sense of safety. Now, you're going to need to turn with me in Scripture several times this morning. So I want to begin in the book of Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7, as you're turning there, I'll just tell you that the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, speaks a lot about warning. And he generally is addressing his warnings to young men. And in this chapter of chapter 7, the primary warning he gives is to the danger of the adulteress. Now, he's speaking here to young men, and so he's, he's warning them of the danger of an adulterous woman. But listen to me, dear friends. This is not just to be aware of women who are dangerous of tempting us towards sexual immorality. There are certainly some men out there that are adulterous men. And there's the reality of giving ourselves to all sorts of sexual immorality. So I would put under this pornography and and all those other things, that anything outside of the God-ordained expression of sexuality. And I want to read almost the entire chapter. In fact, why not just for good measure, let me read the entire chapter to us this morning. Solomon writes, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teachings as the apple of your eye, bind them to your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, You are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, uh, from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And then he begins to describe the process. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, naive, I discerned among the youth, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness." And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares and, 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 uh, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer a peace offering today. I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For, for the man, for the man or her husband, is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He has taken a bag of, of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her. And then he begins to describe the springing of the trap. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as the one, as one into, into fetters to the, the discipline of a fowl, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. truth is chapter 7 describes a common entrapment of man and that is sexual immorality and I listen I was speaking to a a, a father yesterday and we were talking about just some issues that we were both um, dealing with and raising our children and I and I said to him I said you know I'm struggling as a dad just thinking about all the complexities of which my children are facing that I didn't face When I was growing up, my parents pretty much could control what influences were coming into my heart and mind just by the places that I went, school and church and home. And when I was at home, they pretty much knew what I was consuming as far as media. I mean, we had three channels on TV and two of those were too snowy to even see. And so, I mean, they knew what I was, was consuming. And that's not true today. And the avenues and the opportunities today for us to to be bombarded by things that are uh, enticing but will lead to ensnarement are overwhelming, and the challenging to, to parents today is great. But listen to the warning that Solomon writes in this chapter. The very first thing he says is a simple admonition, a simple instruction about anything that ensnares, and that is, don't go near it. Somebody say Amen. Listen, if you're hanging around the edge of a trap, you're playing around with danger. Don't go near it. The writer of Solomon writes, he says, looking out his window, he sees unwise young men go to places where they knew they would be tempted. In other words, he says, they're going places they know the temptress will be. Solomon gives some basic and wise counsel here. He says, don't go near what tempts, 7, 8, and 9, verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, do not do not give opportunity for the dangerous attention in verse 13, 14, and 15. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. I have paid my vows, therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence. Well, that may be welcomed advance, but he was there to receive it. In other words, don't go near it. Don't go in a place where you have the opportunity for dangerous attention, and don't give consideration to the promise of greater pleasure. So in verse 16, 17, and 18, there's the invitation, come and participate in what we we ought not to do but it, but the presentation of it is it's good i've prepared my home i've prepared my bed that's going to be good and enjoyable and pleasurable dear friends with any trap there's nothing good that comes from it there's nothing good that comes from seeing how close you can get to a trap without getting caught there's nothing good with looking on the bait with desire there's nothing good that comes from even being near a trap there's a simple but profound truth here, and that is simply do not go near places and do not go near people that tempt towards sin, especially towards sexual immorality. In my course of pastoral ministry, I've had a conversation more than I want to count of people who have said to me, oh, pastor, I have I've let a relationship go too far. Sometimes they'll couch it in. I've, I've had an emotional affair. I've, I've talked too intimately. I've, I've spoken too, um, uh, too frequently with somebody other than my wife, somebody other than my husband that I should not have done. And my counsel to them always begins with sever the relationship. Don't go near them anymore. Whatever it costs you professionally, whatever it costs you relationally, sever that relationship because you're, you're 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 playing with danger. You're going into places where there is temptation, and the admonition of Scripture is run away from that. So often, falling into temptation begins with not being where you ought. You, you, so often, falling into temptation begins with not being where you ought to be. You remember King David fell morally, had an affair, even led to being, him being a murderer. And the Bible tells us that that affair began when all the men were out fighting war. And King David was back home where he should not have been. This applies to where you go and who you talk to and even how you talk to them. Dear friends, there is no married person here today that should be having an intimate or lengthy private conversation with another person other than their wife. That's just all not to be. There's no justification for that, and if you're participating in that, stop it. There's no person uh, that no person should go where they know they will be tempted or spend time with persons that they know that will tempt them. In other words, we must actively avoid even flee from temptation. But the second thing that, that Solomon says here is that we ought to reject the lie that sin has no consequence. So look at what he says in verse nine, 19 and 20. So in verse 19, the tempter says to him, For the for the man or her husband in other translations, is not home. He's gone a long journey and he's taking a bunch of money with him. Now, in these days, there's no ATM, there's no check writing. So when you're going to go on a journey, you gathered up all the money you need for the whole journey, and that's what you took with you. So she's saying, My husband just left, and he took a, a big old bag of money. He's going to be going. To a long time we don't have to worry about him coming home in other words the promise is we can do this and we will not get caught same thing every rabbit thinks when they walk into one of these traps don't they i think i can get a hold of that bait and get out before it snares It's old common trick of every trap looks inviting looks free looks open looks safe Listen to me very carefully. Not getting caught does not getting caught does not relieve you from the consequences. If you're here today and you're participating in sin and nobody knows it, that doesn't mean that you're free of the consequences of your sin. Not experiencing uh, difficulty like financial consequences or anything like that does not relieve you from the consequences. Just because you can manage all the things in your life and still continue to participate in sin doesn't mean that you have avoided the consequences. All sin has consequences. Some sin has immediate Temporary consequences. Some sin may feel like it has little or no consequences, but all sin destroys relationships between each other, damages relationships between you and God, and forfeits the blessings of God. Do not believe the lie that you can enter a trap, enjoy the bait, and then escape without any consequences. And I would just simply say to you that sexual immorality brings about destruction. Look at what he says at the very end of this chapter. Verse 22, and suddenly, and suddenly, that's the, that's the springing of a trap. You thought you could get away with it. You thought you could enjoy something that you ought not to enjoy without any consequence. And suddenly, as he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one, uh, as, as one in fetters or in chains to the, to, the, uh, to the discipline of a fowl, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a, as a bird hastens to the snare, So he does not know that it will cost him his life. Fully committed. And once fully committed, the snare, the trap springs. And before you realize what you have done, you're trapped. All sin brings consequences. But listen to me very carefully. Sexual sin is the most violent of them all. Sexual immorality does greater damage than any other sin. I read the passage this morning out of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, flee sexual immorality because in part it's a sin against your own body. And I just want to be honest with you, friends. Husbands and wives, Whenever you goes to Las Vegas tomorrow and squanders your whole, uh, everything your family owns and destitutes you financially, and they come home and they repent of their sin and they get right with God and they get right with you. You can survive that. Husbands and wives, one of you um, is, uh, gives yourself to drug addiction and it's awful and it brings all kind of destruction in your life and, and you repent of that and God heals you of that, you can rebuild from that. And yes, dear husbands and wives, you give yourself to sexual immorality, you can heal from that too, but it is a unique ripping at the fabric of the oneness of marriage like no other thing. It's a violently damaging sin. You cannot play with that. And by the way, those of you who are not yet married, you're ripping at that and tearing at that goodness every time you participate in sexual immorality outside of marriage. It's a trap, promise of uh, uh, safety and, and ease and goodness, and yet it damages, it destroys, it ruins. Be wary, be careful of the trap of sexual immorality. Second trap And that is worldly entanglements. Now, these these next two are ones that I don't think many of you would even put in the category of ensnarements. But worldly entanglements. Take your Bibles and go to uh, Romans chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'll read you a passage out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7 says that the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. It was a common theme throughout Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, the law said that Israel was not to loan money to one another because they did not, and they were not to borrow money from foreign folks outside of the of the the nation because God did not want them to ensnare, did not want to be enslaved, the Promised Land and the Promised people to anything or anyone else. I hope you found it. Romans chapter 13, verse 5, Paul is writing about our relationship to the world around us. Romans 13, verse 5, he says, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And then he gives some instruction. Render to all what is due them Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Then he gives a very interesting statement. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Just two things about worldly entanglements. The Bible has a lot to say without, about overly entangling ourselves in the affairs of the world. Now, primarily, I think, both the Romans passage and the Proverbs 22, 7 passage is talking about indebting ourselves so deeply and greatly to the things of this world that we become enslaved to the things of this world. And listen, dear friends, most of us in this room don't perceive this as a trap. But we're living in what they call a consumeristic Uh, culture where more is always presented as better and new is always presented as better and 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 the promise of that is you can get more and you can get new just by signing another piece of paper indebting yourself a little bit more and you can keep up with the promise of the goodness of things but when you ensnare yourself with worldly entanglements it does two things to you at first it restricts your usefulness listen to me carefully I primarily see this as living beyond your means and over-indebting yourself. Do you understand that the church today does not have a money problem? We are the most wealthy people, or in the Southern Baptist world, we're the most wealthy generation of Southern Baptists that's ever been. You realize that? We've got more disposable income. And by the way, if you're sitting in here, you're thinking, well, the pastor's talking about those rich people, but not me. No, I'm talking about you you own more than one pair of shoes you're rich if you own more than one car you're rich you're vastly rich if you own a car and 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 and, and tremendously wealthy if you own more than one two uh, more than one car we're sitting in a building that we expected to be air conditioned and heated and lighted and all the other things we're the most wealthiest generation of southern Baptists ever lived and yet even during the great depression they gave more to missions than we do today I don't think it's because our hearts have changed toward our generosity. In fact, if anything, I think we're as generous, desiring people as we've ever been. But you know what has changed? We've indebted ourselves. We're paying off things that we purchased years ago. We've bought into the idea that we've got to hold things, consume things, own things. And so we don't have the resources to give generously to the Lord. Most of us have entangled ourselves so deeply into debt that we have, uh, we, we, uh, we, we have um, that we have nothing left to be generous with. Become so over entangled with the things of this world that you have given your best to the worldly things and have little or nothing to give to the Lord. And so Paul instructs the church: pay what uh, pay what you owe. And do not put yourself in a position of owing any man that you might be free to be used of the Lord. And listen to how this works. When you over-entangle yourself to the world, you restrict, you forfeit your own usefulness to the Lord. The truth of it is, I gave the appeal for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. You know, the Lord may be stirring on your heart to give generously to that. And then you understand, well, I can't. It's just not the money in the bank account to do that. You've restricted your own usefulness because you've entangled yourself to the world. And you know, not only does it, it, does it restrict your usefulness, but it steals your attention. It steals your attention. I just want to ask you a question this morning. What if, What if God called you to go on the mission field tomorrow? Could you go? I mean, realistically, could you go? Could you make a decision tomorrow to leave everything here and go what if God called you to take a job or to change to a different career that paid you significantly less than what you're making today could you make could you do that what if God right now called you to make a radically generous sacrifice could you give it when you are over entangled with the things of worldly pursuits your attention is given only to managing and keeping these things. And therefore, these things control you rather than you controlling these things. You begin to work for these things rather than these things blessing you. Your attention your attention, should be singularly on how you personally and how your family can most honor God. So your heartbeat ought to be, listen, God, if you call us around the globe tomorrow, we'll sell everything and go. God, if you'll call me, if you're calling me to take a job that doesn't pay me what I'm making today, but it's where you want me to be, I'll take that job. God, if you're calling me to be radically generous, I'll give anything I have. But frankly, if you give yourself to the trap of over-entangling yourself with the world, the the reality is, not only does it steal your usefulness, but it steals your attention. You're no longer praying, God, where do you want me to go? You're no longer asking God, what do you want me to give? You're no longer praying, God, listen, I'll do anything you're doing. You're just simply getting up on Monday morning to go to work, to pay off the things that you bought yesterday. And your attention is given to worldly things. Listen, I'm telling you, folks, when you stand before God in glory, you won't care how many new cars you owned. Nobody will care how many square feet you had in your house or whether or not you recovered the floor, whether or not you wore nice clothes or had the latest iPhone or any of that stuff. It'll all be burned up anyway. But what will matter is did you give everything you have for the glory of God. When he called, did you say, yes, send me? Where you'll be in every element of your life. Don't get entrapped in the ensnarements of this world. One last one. And this is what I'm pretty sure most of us don't recognize as a trap. And that is a false sense of peace and safety. Find in your Bibles 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, it's in your New Testament. Right before the 1st and 2nd Timothys. Paul's writing to the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, he writes these words. Now as to the times and the epics. In other words, now to the, the days that we're living. Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they, that is the world around us, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another as you are also doing. There is an ensnarement. There is a trap. In fact, Paul references it here with the world saying, peace and safety. Peace and safety. Now, this is what I mean by this trap. It's the, it's the, it's the encouragement to relax. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. And it's testified to In other words, if you've given yourself to this, it's testified to in the intensity by which you live your life. So Paul gives the admonition that these are not days to be relaxing. In fact, he says these are urgent times. And the reason why he says they're urgent times is he says because Jesus is going to come, second coming of Jesus, like a thief in the night. And that's a phrase that we use around around church a lot because we find it in Scripture. And what it simply means is if you knew a robber was going to come at your house, you'd be ready, right? I mean, you'd lock the doors, you'd have your shotgun ready, you'd be standing at the door. But thieves don't come when you're ready. They sneak in when you're unaware. They catch you by surprise. And so Paul says, like a thief in the night, Jesus is going to come. In other words, he's going to catch all of us by surprise. Now, Now, here's the dynamic that he's saying. We're in church today, and most of us have already planned for what we're going to do after church this afternoon, right? Well, maybe you haven't, but I know where I'm eating lunch today because that was important to me this morning when I got up. Amen? My Sunday school class is eating together, and I'm hoping they brought some good food today. I've planned what I'm going to do this afternoon. I'm going to come back to the church at 445, and we're going to do Operation Meet the Neighbors, and I'm excited about that. Excited to spend some more time with you all this afternoon and see how the Lord uses that. I'm planning for Monday, what I've got to do next week. I've got on my calendar. We've been planning for a couple of months out, all those sort of things. But you know the reality of it is, there's going to come a Sunday, there's going to come a Monday, there's going to come a Tuesday or a Wednesday when all of those plans will be thrown out the window because Jesus comes back. And it produces an urgency. So let's put that on the spiritual dynamic. There are some people that I know I need to have a conversation with about Jesus, that I'll think, well, I'll get to it next week. Friends, there's going to come a day when there is no more next week. There are some decisions that you need to make for Jesus tonight, today. Some of you personally. And every Sunday you come in and you hear the sermon, you sing the songs, and then you walk out and you think, "I, I, I might decide that for Jesus next week. And there's going to come a week, a Sunday, when there won't be another next week. And Paul is making the case we are living in urgent days. But even while the world, while we live in urgent days, the world is promising peace and safety that destruction will not ever come. Now, this is how we see the lack of urgency. This is how I see it. I see the lack of urgency in our lives manifesting in our disinterest in knowing and living out the Word of God. Let me tell you something. If you believe, to, that you believe today that Jesus was coming back this afternoon and that the, the eternal decision of heaven or hell would be made in that moment, I guarantee you would be quite interested on making sure you knew Jesus and following after the will of God. Would you not? Would you not? But if you think lunch is coming and then supper and then Monday morning, you can take it or leave it. Peace and safety, the world says. Peace and safety. I see it not only in that, but I also see it in the lack of concern for the lost. Why do we not share the gospel with our neighbors? Why do we not share it with our family? Because we believe the lie of the world, peace and safety. Jesus, the coming of Jesus is going to catch you by surprise. I see it in, the, in just the personal indifference of right, to righteousness. Personal indifference to righteousness. Church people, Letting vulgar things come out of your mouth. Church folk watching wicked things on TV. Church folks consuming things that do not honor the Lord from the things that you watch on your phone and your computer and the rest. The urgency of the moment comes from the truth that Jesus is coming again. That the opportunity for salvation is going to end suddenly and unexpectedly. And that the opportunity for working for the kingdom is fleeting and short. And so here's the, here's the admonition. Do not be lulled into losing sight for the urgency of the gospel. Now is the opportunity. Now is the time to give all we have for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom. The snare, the bait is peace and safety. Come on in. The water's fine. Don't worry about tomorrow. It'll come. Dear friends, there is no time for Disengagement. Paul references two things here. He references sleeping and drunkenness. Now, I hope none of you are drunkards this morning, but all of you sleep. I like to sleep. I want to get my seven hours every night. He recognizes that both of these activities are generally done at night. Now, there's a reason why he references nighttime here, because we don't sleep, and hopefully you don't get drunk during working hours. Right, The sun comes up, that's the time to be at labor, to be at work. Wake up and go to work. Sleep at night when the sun's down. Same as with drunkenness. Do not sleep nor get drunk during the day because that's the time for laboring. What Paul is making the case is We are people of the day. This is the moment for laboring. The lie, the trap is to relax. Give in, don't worry about tomorrow, it'll always come. That is an ensnarement all unto itself. The admonition here is this is not a time for disengagement. Or this is not a time to coast. This is not a time to have one foot in and one foot out. This is not a time to be a half-hearted follower of Jesus. This is not a time to have the attitude that you just hope everything's going to work out in the end. This is a time to work, dear friends. This is a time to be alert to what the Lord is doing. This is a time to be fully engaged with the glory of God. Let me tell you something. Everything I'm reading right now on on just church growth and church revitalization, they say to us the only thing you can expect now with people is if you get somebody to come two times out of the month, two Sunday a month people, that's who you count as your fully engaged people. That ought to bring us to shame, dear friends. But you know what that is? Listen, I know a lot of you there, you got one foot here in the church and one foot in the world. You got a lot of things going on that are stealing your attention because you have believed the lie that peace and safety, everything's okay. This is not the time for that. Be people of the day. Sleep at night, get drunk at night, but we are people of the day. Be engaged. Work while there is time. Be alert to what the Lord is doing. Be fully engaged with the word of God, the church of God, obeying the commands of God, actively be pursuing everything according to the righteousness of God. Boy, this has been a light sermon, hadn't it? So there are some of you you've already gotten so deep traps sprung i know i know some of them are little traps i like this one right here little bitty trap some of them are big i've never been an animal inside a trap praise the lord but i can imagine if you're in the trap and the, the door on the other end closes that's a sickening feeling, isn't it? Now, I've never been an animal in a trap, but I have certainly been entrapped before. I've given myself to things that I thought were safe, only to realize that they were an ensnarement, and to hear the slapping of the door, the closing, the springing of the trap, and realizing that I'm stuck. Some of you are there. Shame, pride, and arrogance are powerful emotions in that they will keep you in danger, and they will keep you ensnared. If you have been trapped this morning, you may be ashamed that you ever were so foolish as to give yourself to such sin. You may be shame that you gave in to temptation. And that shame is a powerful emotion because it can keep you from confessing that sin, repenting of that sin. Shame can tempt you to try and keep your sin a secret. Maybe if you just be real steel, nobody will know that you're ensnared. Shame will tempt you to try to keep your sin a secret and to keep that secret from becoming... Um, uh, and, and, and keep that secret not only from those that you know but as far as you can and by the way keeping secrets is an ensnarement all on its own but shame will do is just keep you in the trap just be quiet wait for the trapper to come pride can cause you to ignore the warnings pride can make you confident in your ability to beat the odds that's where most of us Caught. I had a guy one time come to me, and he said, "He said I'm making my living gambling." He was prideful about it, and I said to him, "I said you know they publish in Las Vegas, Vegas the odds of the house." And if you don't know that, but they'll tell you if you ask. They will tell you the odds of the house. And by the way, they're never on your side. The house always wins. He said, oh, yeah, 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 but I'm a professional. (laughs) I thought you're a professional loser. The house always wins. What he's saying is, man, I've gotten close to the bait. I've gotten a little nibble of it. I've gone in the trap, and I've gone out the trap, but I ain't got caught yet. And that pride is going to lead him one day to getting ensnared, to getting caught, by the way, it's why these traps have not changed over hundreds of years. You can preach this message a thousand years from now and you can use the same old traps. They just work. Pride makes you confident in your ability to beat the odds. Pride can keep you from heading, uh, can keep you, uh, heading towards danger even when you know it is not wise nor safe. And, of course, arrogance. Arrogance can keep you from calling out for help. Arrogance can cause you to try and escape from the trap in your own efforts. Listen to me very carefully, friends. The only wisdom about traps is this, run away. Do not play with them. Do not grow comfortable around them. Do not attempt to outsmart them. Run away why paul says in 1 corinthians chapter six flee immorality it's not a call to get smart to read some more books about it to get educated to be a professional flee run away and if you are caught then you need to understand you must call on the only one who can rescue Bible says, in fact, Jesus says in John chapter eight, if the son makes you free, it was next, you are free indeed. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Trapped and to trap and snare. Jesus says, I came to give you life, and life abundant. I preach this message today because I believe that many of you today are in danger of or even ensnared by these traps. I just want to call you. Run away. If you've been ensnared, then call upon the Lord. He alone is our rescue.